G'day, and welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Key areas of focus are industry analysis with key stakeholders, policymakers, engagement with farmers and producers, and working to close the rural-urban divide. Farmers work hard, they love the land, and are a critical part of New Zealand's fabric. There are many things for farmers to think about, whether it be drought, market conditions and farm gate returns, and increased pressure from the public or policymakers. Working with Postquake Farming, we're taking a look at what farmers are doing to improve their businesses, their biodiversity, their land use and their well-being. This week, I'm looking at diversification and land use change. So what drives land use change? Humans have always changed land use to meet current and expected future needs. It starts with deforestation, then pastoral farming, intensification through dairy farming and horticulture, and of course, urbanisation. Now we're seeing some land being retired to regenerate native bush, and indeed the planting of exotic forests for reasons that are well documented. Some of the drivers of land use change are economic returns from a certain land use when compared with another, Access to capital varies for different land uses. There is plenty of capital in New Zealand, but its availability varies at an individual level. We also need to consider soil type, topography, water availability, and climatic factors. We also take into consideration the social implications in land use change. For example, animal welfare and the environmental impacts of land use. Societal pressures and perceptions along with regulatory limitations around discharges, chemicals and nitrogen usage, population change or an increase in demand for land for urban settlement or it could be a change in consumer preferences which could either increase or decrease demand for existing foods or perhaps demand for new products. All the things I've mentioned but are not limited to have an impact on land use change. And of course, we have to think about personal preference as well. What one person can or wants to achieve may very well differ from another. This week on Factor Magri, I'm talking with Greg Shepherd from Shepherd Agriculture. Greg has over 25 years working as a farm advisor and thrives off assisting in the development and prosperity of the farming community. And he sees his role as working with individual farm business owners and the wider farming community in a way which leads to sustainable business growth, culminating in the realisation of individual goals. Greg was recently part of an integrated farming and forestry case study on a property west of Kikarangu, north of Kaikoura, to explore land use change. I am also welcoming back Dave Janet from Forestry Management Group to further discuss forestry being integrated into farming systems and to get his views on the current state of play between certain farming groups and the forestry industry. Dave is vastly experienced and over the years has provided forest owners and farmers with expertise in establishment, tending, harvesting forests throughout New Zealand. Let's check in with Dave. Hello Dave, thank you for talking with me today. Welcome Angus. Dave, for those that missed the last episode you were on the show, please can you tell me a bit about the work you do? Yeah, sure. We're, we're a company called Forest Management, um, headquartered in Christchurch. We operate across the whole South Island and lower half of the North Island. We work predominantly with farmers and small forest owners in harvesting and managing and establishing forests for them. Uh, we've been going for over 33 years, so we've got a long track record. Um, so at the moment, 
we, we harvest around 1.1 million tonnes of logs a year. Uh, export those, sell a lot to domestic customers in, in New Zealand as well, processors. And um, at the moment we're doing a lot of planting, helping farmers and small forest investors in establishing new forests, both just for timber, uh, carbon, and really a combination of both. Forestry has been getting some attention lately, and there is concern by some farmers that too much good productive land is being converted into forestry. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think if you look at the actual numbers, last year there was around 22,000 hectares of new land planted. This year, I'm guessing, but I would say it'll probably be up to 30, 35,000, which is really long, a long-term trend going back to what normally has been occurring. But what we're seeing is the vast majority of land that is being planted is um, lower class land, um, class six or even seven. And in the North Island, we're seeing a lot of class seven and eight land, which is highly erodible land. So I think the upset that some people are seeing is in certain regions where Southern Hawke's Bay, East Coast, um, Whanganui, Northland, where land prices tend to be cheaper. So other companies who wanted to plant more have headed to those regions and bought farms. Um, so I can understand where the angst comes from there because all of a sudden they're seeing a sudden move of, of people to arrive. But you tend to find that land's cheaper and there's a lot of more erodible land in those areas. Um, so that's the reason that, that forestry has gone there. So overall, I'd say we're not seeing large areas of what I call highly productive land going in. And I think the key point is, is that we're not actually seeing a lot of permanent carbon forests being planted. There's a lot of forests getting planted, but the vast, vast majority of it is for, actually for timber production alongside carbon as well. And that especially applies to the, the small portion. It is only a small portion of overseas buyers coming in. Um, people don't quite understand that a, those people aren't allowed to plant permanent radiator carbon forests. They have to be for timber production. And secondly, that they have no access whatsoever to any of the, the planting grants under the 1BT, as do any of the other investors. The 1BT is purely just really for farmers, and that's it. We are hearing that grants intended for exotic planting are being reviewed, and there is risk that they might be stopped. Is that what you're hearing too? Well, anecdotally, that's what we're hearing from um, the 1BT team. You know, we're heavily involved in the 1BT grant scheme, uh, working with our farming clients. Um, I think our company overall has managed to attain probably 30 to 40% by value of all the 1BT grants given out in New Zealand. So we're a pretty large player and we've got a lot of our farming clients um, involved with it. But we've been informed lately that due to probably <laughs> some of the commentary and uproar about trees and, and people anti it, is that they're now looking at whether they're going to bother actually especially in exotic trees, actually funding any more of them. So it's, it's a bit upsetting really, for, especially for a lot of our clients who spend a lot of time planning their farms about where they want to put trees, and in many cases getting resource consents around um, water, et cetera, to plant them, that they're now probably going to be turned down and not get it. So it's a sort of an own goal really for the farming community because there's a lot of farmers who do want to take advantage of this who are going to maybe stop now and not get it which is a real shame. Is there a problem with the ETS? Um, I don't think there's a problem with the ETS. I think there's a <laughs> there's a culture. Trees are something that's very different outside people's normal business, and people are very scared of what they think may happen. I think there's a perception that people believe that the whole of New Zealand is going to get covered in pine trees. Um, I don't know anyone in the forest industry who wants to see the whole of New Zealand covered in pine trees. I certainly don't. I don't think it'd be a good thing at all. And I don't believe it's going to happen because the land is actually owned by farmers who are going to make the decision of what they do. And 
there's simply the land that's going to be available for planting is not going to come up to the volume that they're talking about. So I don't think the ETS is a problem. I, I think it's been looked at in completely the wrong way, especially by the sheep and beef hill country and farming area in some areas of the country. And that this is a, this is an amazing opportunity if you use it properly and incorporate it into your farming systems. It can improve your profitability, take all those hard areas of your farm out, increase resilience, and give you another income option, both in the short term and the long term around succession. And um, you know we have a large number of clients who have taken this up now and have been involved in the ETS for over 10 years. And it's been life-changing for them on their farms. It's phenomenal. They are still farming, probably farming as many animals, and they're far more profitable and far more resilient. And um, they've got their succession issues all sorted out, and they're as, they're as happy as sandboys, tangles. What region has the lion's share of grants been approved in? Well, we got the latest data we could from um, NPI up to the 31st of May for 1BT. And in 1BT, they've issued out to the end of May was uh, just over $43 million of grants. And out of that, Canterbury has received $13 million, almost 30% of the 1BT money. So Canterbury has far and away had the lion's share of the money that's come out of that. And that is all for farmers. All for farmers. So there's probably over, there's probably over 700 hectares of indigenous reversion and planting being approved in Canterbury and over nearly 5,000 hectares of exotic planting of different species. But I, I emphasize again, it's, it's all for farmers. So it's actually farmers who are leading the charge in Canterbury and who are looking at this and making decisions and planting parts of their farms in trees. And some of that's for timber, and some of it'll be for permanent forest as well. But that's what suits best on their farm. They are making those decisions to put into their farming systems. I believe forestry works well in farming systems, and specifically on sheep and beef properties that have a percentage of marginal land or land that is prone to erosion. Do you think concerns are warranted around farming carbon by some? And do you think there should be a limit on offsets? Um, I don't personally think there should be a limit on offsets. I do take... I take note of the concern over, people have this concern of large scale permanent radiata forests, and especially on more uh, good land, productive land. It's your definition of productive land at the end of the day. I'm talking about class, you know, four or five land, and probably some of the better half of class six land, which can still be good productive either forest timber land or pastoral farming land. Um, So I think there's a conversation to be had about, well, on large scale, do you allow radiata permanent forest on that better class of land or do you sort of look at saying well you can do it on large scale but it's got to be on the high end of class six seven and eight land which is highly erodible and really should be in some sort of permanent forest cover Um, i think we've got to be careful here because for a lot of farmers they have areas on their farms they want to plant in exotic trees and leave in permanent forests because from a timber aspect it's not viable to actually build a road and go and harvest it but it's not viable to actually farm it for animals either so there's areas there that may have a higher LUC class land, land class on them, but for the best for that farm system is to put an area of, um, you know, it might be pine, it might be redwoods, it could be cypress, it could be anything, um, or it could be native if people want to do that as well. But we, we, you've got to keep that flexibility, and that's really there for farmers, so they can actually have a much more flexible land use planning process around their farms. So. I think if, if farmers take that up, they really hold the solution to this, hold the answer to this so-called problem. If they take this up and integrate trees into their farms, the whole problem will actually disappear because there'll be enough offsets and they'll, they'll incorporate it into their farms and be far better off for it. 
So the forestry industry and sheep and beef farmers aren't at odds with each other? Well, I don't believe we are at all. You know, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of media and hype, and unfortunately in this world today, it all gets, you know, it's all, um, you know, points of interest, try, trying to get attention. So you have these, these hysterical sort of comments, to be fair, coming from all sides of the equation. But, you know, I, I, we deal with sheep and beef farmers, they're our clients, a lot of my friends, they're my family. And, you know, a lot of them want to integrate trees into their farms and are doing it. Some don't want to, and I totally respect that as well. If they want to, don't want to have many trees on their farms, that's their right. You have to respect that. Um, but I don't know anyone in the forest industry who wants to see the death of the sheep and beef industry. I certainly don't. I think it's important that we have a mixed economy in New Zealand and have all sorts of things going on in our farm landscapes, in our rural landscapes. So I, I don't see there's any need for any sort of he and she or them and us sort of type debate to go on. And there just needs an open rational discussion. And But the reality is we are going to see whole properties that will get bought that get put into timber as well because people want to grow timber estates. So, you know, there's going to be a conversion, but that will be cheaper land, land that's probably not as valuable for farming um, and, and will occur. But farmers have got the opportunity to take that up. And I think it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity that's sitting there in front of sheep and beef farmers. Thank you very much for your time and thoughts today, Dave. You're welcome. Let's now check in with Greg Shepherd. Hello, Greg. Thank you for your time Hi. today. Nice to be on board. Please, can you tell me a bit about the work that you do? Um, okay, look, I guess just in general then, I guess I, I call myself a, a uh, consultant uh, to the sheep, beef and deer farmers uh, throughout the top of the South Island and Lower North Islands. I guess in general, I've been uh, in farm consultancy for the last 25 years. We're talking about diversification today, and many farming businesses are looking to diversify, and I understand you were recently involved in a case study on a property north of Kaikoura. That's right, yeah. The the property was located at uh, Kikaringu, uh, right on the coast, and the property is uh, 700 hect- 750 hectares in total. It's got um, some pre-1990 forest, uh, about 270 hectares, a small amount of post-1989 uh, forest giving a pastoral area of about 460 hectares. So the aim of that project was to really look at the opportunity to establish more forestry on that property, the aim of adding value to it. The businesses involved were entering two to two and a half thousand winter trade hoggets, which all get sold at about 22 kilos carcass weight. They're bought in the March-April period at 30 kilo live weight, approximately 900 to 1,000 ewes with lamps at foot are purchased, with those ewes then being sold prime in store at weaning in January. Uh, a further 2,000 lambs are purchased in December uh, through the January period and finished. Uh, there's 180 weaner bulls bought in the spring and sold in the autumn. 120 uh, Hereford weaner bulls purchased in the autumn for the dairy industry. Further 350 yearling Frisian bulls uh, purchased from spring uh, and sold in the autumn. Uh, another 320 yearling Jersey bulls for the dairy industry bought in spring and sold in, uh, sold as two-year-olds. So it's very much a, a trading operation. Uh, I guess the first thing to point out is that this is a high-performance business, it's generating a gross farm income in excess of $1,500 a hectare. Uh, it does have reasonably high operating expenses of $700 a hectare, and it's generating a, a farm operating surplus, or EBITR, earnings before interest tax and rent, of $840. That's really top-notch economically. It's, it's right up there with the best of the best. 
So you've got to bear that in mind when we uh, look to then evaluate the impact of forestry on the business. So in working with a forestry consultant uh, or forestry and carbon consultant, we looked at targeting seven hectares for planting in a range of species from manuka and kanuka to permanent eucalypts and pinus rata for timber. So the economics from that clearly showed that there's different areas of land within that 67 hectares, which meant that um, not all of it was suitable for um, for just straight radiata, uh, hence the ukes and uh, manuka in the mix or in the analysis. As a weighted average, the economics showed that planting eight hectares in manuka, 36 in eucalypts and 19 in, in pine would generate a, an EBITDA of around $470 a hectare annualised over the life of um, those forests which sounds pretty good. What sets this property apart? How are they generating such a high return per hectare? What sets them apart? Essentially, um, they have a very strong business focus and they regularly analyse the financial performance of the policies that they employ and the returns that can be extracted um, from those policies. Uh, Not ones to sit still. They're always looking for opportunities. See them, they grasp them. And you know, they're probably not what you'd call traditional farmers, and yet that's where their background hails from. So they're just really looking to um, to optimise the, the performance on the various um, management units that they have on the farm. And obviously being a trading property, they clearly get their timing impeccable in terms of their entry and their exit on stock. Absolutely. Information from the farm. So they're collecting livestock information, weights, growth rates, or calculating growth rates, pasture covers, uh, and putting all that into the melting pot and, and um, making their decisions as informed as they possibly can. And then at the end of the day, there's an element of just artistry to it. You know, it's it, what sets one businessman apart from another. You know, sometimes it's, it's just that they have an act. They seem to be able to process things better. And, and I think these individuals um, are in that category. What other considerations need to be given when you are advising clients on land use changes or system changes, and in particular, if that changes retiring land from pastoral grazing? Look, I guess there's a process that I follow and, and, and I guess you talk to a different consultant and they might have a different uh, viewpoint as well. But essentially, uh, first and foremost, business. Assess your resources, uh, and I'm talking about your land uh, and livestock. Uh, and, and I guess you could also include your own skill and knowledge as well. Review your livestock systems and the performance, the financial performance that it's uh, driving uh, for your business. Get good forestry and carbon guidance if that's something that you're looking to get into. Uh, and I guess when you do that, and if you're looking to make some change, um, you've got to assess the, the change that might occur in livestock numbers, change in your management and um, and time uh, required, the have on staff and labour. Also assess the capital that may be freed up to help you do and that land use change or whatever it is that you're wanting to do. You also, particularly if you're going into, into forestry, need to assess the forestry site um, and the potential tree species that will grow there effectively. Um, it you know, may look pretty good on the surface, um, but uh, it's only when you, you dig down two or three feet that you hit a um, you know, rock or something may have an impact on um, you know, what it is that you... Uh, try and grow there. So I guess you've really got to get to a point where you can understand the opportunity cost of any change to your your business, whether that's 
changing livestock policies or changing the land use into into forestry or I guess in the Tasman region where I am into hops and, and those sorts of things. And importantly, that involves interrogating your financial performance. Understand what it is that your business is delivering for you right now economically. Um, but wider than that, I think you also have to understand fully what's driving you and know that the decisions that you make are the right ones for you. Is it about profit? Is it about uh, income diversification? Is it about um, achieving better land management and environment outcomes for your business? Or is it part of a succession pathway? So those are some of the things that uh, I regularly look at um, when assessing changes to a system. I ask this question an awful lot, but I think it's an important one. Do you think there is a disconnect between urban populations and rural populations? Uh, yes, I do. But I also think it's a two-way thing, and it's about communication. Uh, and I guess we all know that to affect uh, to communicate effect, uh, both parties must be engaged with one another. And I don't think that's happening at the present time. Um, I look at, um, it's very difficult to achieve positive communication when over the last 10 to 15 years there has been a lot of um, uh, media uh, focused stories um, seemingly painting agriculture in our rural communities in a bad light, um, which is really unfortunate. And, and uh, I think if we can get um, stories and um, you know, try and get more of those um, nieces and nephews and grandchildren uh, visiting farms like used to happen, you know, that would be a great way to, um, to try and get better connection between um, the two sectors or the two uh, populations. In a general sense, how are your farming clients feeling about the future of the agri-sector? Um, look, right now I'd have to say that they're feeling fairly beaten um, due to um, the drought. Um, COVID-19 um, and the impact that that had, you know, leading into the, um, into the winter um, and the potential for future market uncertainty. Uh, we've also had in the last 12 months uh, uh, NES, um, the NES biodiversity uh, delivered to, uh, to farmers um, and also the zero carbon bill. Um, so there's been a lot of challenges thrown at farmers in the last 12 months. Um, but I guess uh, my take on farmers is that they're all optimists and they're always looking for the, uh, that, uh, that sunrise tomorrow. And um, I think, you know, inherently, by and large, farmers remain positive. Thank you very much for your time today, Greg. It's been my pleasure. Thank you to my guests today, Dave Janet and Greg Shepherd. Their time and professional thoughts are appreciated. Dave says that majority of forestry being planted is predominantly for timber and carbon farming makes up a small percentage of the overall forests going in. And the small number of overseas buyers buying land can't plant for carbon purposes they can only plant for timber production, nor do they have access to the grants or the One Billion Trees program that farmers have access to. The case study that Greg Shepherd was involved in north of Kaikoura is an interesting one. This farming couple are right at the top in terms of performance and their per hectare return is about as high as you will get in a livestock trading system. The high level goals of this farming family are to have a financially and environmentally sustainable farming business 
and to grow the business further off farm, with the overall goal to make farm succession as even and fair as possible. When you drill down further, their specific goals are to expand the business to include two sustainable farming operations to support farm succession, to keep the animal production system simple and profitable and within the capability of the land with negligible environmental impact. They want to operate a sheep and beef unit that is financially, environmentally and socially sustainable, generating as much profit as possible from the farm and diversify business investments, risk and protect and enhance the aesthetic, biodiversity and environmental values of the property for future generations. A breakdown of the sheep and beef trading property's current farming system is 462 hectares effective land. They trade 2,000 to 2,500 winter hoggets, bought in March at 30 kilograms live weight and finished at 22 kilograms carcass weight. They buy 900 to 1,000 ewes with lambs at foot at 130% lambing rate. Ewes are sold prime and store at weaning in January. 2,000 lambs are purchased in the December-January period and finished. 180 weaner bulls are purchased in the spring and sold in the autumn at 160 to 230 kilograms live weight. 120 Hereford weaner bulls are purchased in the autumn for the dairy industry. 350 yearling Frisian bulls from spring and sold autumn. 320 yearling Jersey bulls for the dairy industry bought spring and sold as two-year-olds. Five to seven hectares of kale sown in spring for late summer and early autumn lambs. 24 hectares of winter rape, mid-October spray, summer fallow, sown in January and February, and grazed by bulls and lambs. Five to 15 hectares of Italian ryegrass, of which five to seven hectares replaces kale in autumn, and some may be sown in green feed oats. They also have 13 hectares of lucerne, 14 hectares of red clover, and up to 73 hectares in forages. Their returns are impressive. At $840 EBITDA, or earnings before interest, tax, and rent per hectare. Compared with the beef plus lamb economic service data averages of EBITDA for South Island High Country at $52 a hectare, South Island Hill Country at $158 per hectare, and South Island Finishing and Breeding Country at $406 per hectare. The best forestry returns are in exotics, and in this case study, looking at Pinus radiata only, which includes the one billion trees grant, carbon income, and harvested timber, would return this farming business $770 EBITDA. A takeaway for me in all of this is that traditional pasture-based farming system returns can match exotic forests, and in some cases beat them. It very much depends on the individual farm and the farmer applying their skills. As Greg says, in business, there are better players than others. One thing is for certain though, both farmers and forestry groups need to get on the same page and work towards common goals and outcomes. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factum Agri.